Welcome back to Black Desserts. I'm your host, Therese Nelson. And on this episode that we're calling Pie Art, I got to chat with the always fascinating Tiffany Ann Parks, a Jamaican-American chef, educator, social scientist, and fine artist who creates high-concept pies through her interdisciplinary art practice called Pie Nanny. My name is Tiffany Ann Parks. I am originally from South Florida. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And then I've made my way up to New York now, but lived in almost every Northeastern city. (laughs) My family, my entire family is from Jamaica. And I spent, growing up, I spent summers in Jamaica. So back and forth between South Florida and the Caribbean. And that's definitely reflected in my work. I've been following Tiffany's pastry work for a while now, and I'm always struck by how deceptively pretty her pies are. They reel you in with their detail and flavor combinations, but once she has your attention, her work demands that you contend with some deeply complicated themes. Through Pie Nanny, Tiffany interrogates issues of race, gender, and culture in a way that definitely primes you to engage with them while also making you a little hungry. I began our conversation by asking Tiffany to talk a little bit about how she came to combine her culinary and cultural interests into what has become a unique creative praxis. I've been an artist since the age of five. It was discovered while I was one day bored in church and my mom wanted to keep me quiet. So she gave me the little pamphlets that you get and there was a blank side. So I flipped it over. I had two of them. I flipped one over on the blank side and then I duplicated the, the, the image on the front of the, the program, which was of a family walking into a church. And my mom and dad looked over because they were like, she's so quiet. I was I was a very wild child. So <laughs> they looked over and they were like, what is going on? And they looked and they were like, what? Because, you know, they were like, that is an exact copy or replica of it. And that's how it was discovered that I could draw. And then I just kept practicing as I got older. And I've always, 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 always loved food, right? Like <laughs> more so consumption of it. I didn't really start experimenting with food or like cooking at all until I was like in my late teens. And, and nobody in my family is really much of a food enthusiast or cook or involved in the culinary world. So I started cooking as a teenager. And then one of my main things that I've always loved is desserts, sweets. And I've always loved pie, and not in particular, the beloved pot pie. So one day, and it's just so weird, like I suddenly decided I wanted to make this little seafood medley, like seafood curry medley. And so I started playing with that in my kitchen and then playing with pie crust, like watching all these different tutorials and reading articles. And so I made this seafood curry pot pie, is what I call it now, or the chef's curry seafood. And then I had my friends come over, because anytime I cook, they, <laughs> everybody was like, yes, I'm game. So everybody came over and tried it, and they were like, whoa, Tiffany. <laughs> They're like, you're really on to something here. And so then I just kept playing with it, and just, I really developed a love for playing with dough. Then I started, just randomly started carving into the dough and playing with in that sense. And so I think that's where my style of carving images into pastry started. So it was very organic for me. I love that so much. My first interaction with your work was on your Instagram account. The the name itself, Pineanny, and just the sort of the striking images just arrest you immediately and make you stop and have to engage with them. 
and you are drawn from a lot of cultural references with each creation and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about developing that practice because I know you also have a cultural professional background that sort of lends itself to the references you infuse into your work. Yeah, a large part of what I do is about, all of what I do is about amplifying different facets of Black culture. One big facet is art, Black art for me, or especially Black women artists. More so, I think during the COVID pandemic, I've had a lot more time, of course, as we all have, to be at home experimenting. So I started looking at the work or revisiting the work of a lot of Black female artists that I've always loved. So, of course, Carol Walker, Simone Yvette Lee, Ebony G. Patterson, love her work. She's a Jamaican artist who's become popular over the past, I would say, four four or five years. But yeah, looking at their work and then finding a way to make some of their practices part of my own. And I also have a huge literary background. I was an English major, the master level. So also pulling from a lot of texts that I've read and, and female figures and images that I've like imagined in my head from reading those texts and then applying that to the images that I carve into my pastry as well. You'll notice that a lot of them are profiles of Black women. As far as relating it to culture, I would say when I'm developing particularly like my dessert tarts, one thing I like to do is play with this idea of food and beverage. There's often a separation of the two, but for me, I look at Jamaican culture and I look at Jamaican cuisine and desserts, even though Jamaican desserts aren't the desserts that I, I, I run to <laughs> immediately when I think of dessert. But that's that just leaves room for me in terms of my practice and where I can really contribute more. So I look at uh Jamaican drink, and I say, okay, it's funny how we Jamaicans don't really focus much on, like, we don't, there's not much dairy uh, in our food. Ice cream is not a huge thing in Jamaica, unless, of course, you go to the wonderful Devon House in Kingston, Jamaica, which, oh my God, they have like the best ice cream ever, and their flavors are just like off the charts. But aside from that, dairy is not a big thing in Jamaica. You don't find it in too many of our dishes. But the flavors alone really lend themselves to a lot of the custards that I make. And the drinks lend themselves to being custards. We have this thing in Jamaica called Guinness Stout. Guinness is a stout. Everybody knows that. But the drink is called stout. And you mix Guinness with egg and condensed milk and spices and those are the base like those are the key ingredients to custards so i play with jamaican food and beverage a lot and meld the two two things i want to unpack there because so much so much in what you just said is resonating the american context of desserts the sort of celebration this joyfulness sort of reclamation um aspect of our dessert traditions are so visceral and so particular and i was thinking a lot about what that lens would look like if it was panned outside the u.s i think one of the reasons i want to talk to you is because you do have this southern american upbringing but you also have the juxtaposition of this sort of caribbean heritage and I wonder if you could talk a little you mentioned before you just said desserts in the Caribbean desserts in Jamaica aren't really the same or don't sort of land the same as in the U.S. and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what desserts are what desserts feel like in the Caribbean what their function is what I will say is that a lot of Jamaican desserts are coconut based like you have grater cake you have ooh 
a favorite is a potato pudding. Drops is my favorite. Coconut drops. You have the coconut version. You have the peanut version. You have Toto, which is a coconut cake. Literally, <laughs> I would say 95% of Jamaican dessert is very coconut involved. So that's Jamaican dessert in a nutshell. And I don't want to oversimplify it. But yeah, a lot of Jamaican desserts are centered around coconut, right? That's why I think Jamaican desserts, me playing with that makes a lot of sense for me. Because if I want to create something with a lot of different textures, I can pull that grainy texture from a Jamaican dessert and bring it into my love (laughs) for American decadence and custards. What I will say, too, is that I think my... And this, I think, ties back into something you asked earlier about how I'm infusing all kinds of different facets of culture in my practice. So one thing for me is, I know when I was in undergrad, it was in that weird in-between phase between like undergrad and um, grad school. I was reading more and more literature that actually interested me. So I had read William Wells Brown's Clotel or the President's Daughter. And I marked this as the time where a light bulb went off in my head. And I was just like, wow, I really didn't realize just how bound our histories are. And that is the Caribbean and the American South in particular, looking at those, especially Louisiana as the port for a lot of like Caribbean slaves who entered the U.S. or who were brought to the U.S. Reading that slave narrative by William Wells Brown really was like a pivotal point in like my thought process and thinking about the relationship between the Caribbean and America and Africa. And that is super important to me. Yes, I was raised in South Florida. And that's the thing, whenever people speak of Florida, people tend to think of Florida as like this homogenous state, but it's not. South Florida is very different (laughs) from Central and Northern Florida, mainly because you have such a large Caribbean population but then, and you also have the Southern population there. It's it's an interesting melting pot, for sure. 100%. And even when you said, I grew up in South Florida, it immediately hit. It was like, of course. Like, of course you would have this feeling of preservative Caribbean culture because it's so intentional in that region. And I want to sit with this idea of, when you sort of talk about how our imagination on the Caribbean is framed, in a lot of ways it's framed to our food ways, right? I think of South Florida certainly, in New York, in lots of other places around the country where immigrant communities are able to remain insular. Think about Brooklyn, think about think about parts of D.C. This is the sense that like the food becomes a sort of entry point to understanding the culture. But I'm interested in what that looks like when the culture gets diffused through the translation of a restaurant outside of context. Like you're talking about food in a place that is so beholden to terroir, so beholden to cultural context. And then you come here and try and put it in the context of a restaurant that might not have the same connotation as it would back home, but this is the entry point that people have. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how Caribbean desserts, Caribbean cuisine, it's translated in American context. Is it though? (laughs) I don't even know. Caribbean cuisine as a whole, yes. There's a lot to be said about that. Caribbean dessert, not really. Like you don't see Caribbean desserts here in the U.S. Unless you walk into somebody's patty shop and you pick up some coconut drops. Like that's about all or some grater cake. 
or maybe bun and cheese, which is like a savory dessert that you really only eat at Easter. Or even you might eat some at Christmas and maybe black cake, which is like a fruit cake, but like a drunken fruit cake. Like you'll only see those things though in a patty shop. There's a spot back home in South Florida called Charlie's Pastries. Literally, you just see a, a whole spread of that and that's it. But you don't really see like Caribbean desserts. What you do see though are popularized Caribbean dishes. In particular, I don't like to say, I don't like to say this, but <laughs> because I might ruffle the feathers of some other Caribbean folks, but you see a lot of Jamaican food, right? Like Jamaican food is everywhere. All right. And that is not just everywhere in the U.S. is global. And I've traveled and I've, I've seen Jamaican food, even if it's just our patties, like you see them everywhere. So you see, you certainly do see these popularized desserts such as beef patty and cocoa bread. You'll see curry chicken, oxtail. And what I will say is the desserts aren't decadent, but that's okay because the cuisine makes up for it. Like the cuisine is though, right? Everything is, you know, heavily stewed and seasoned to the tea. But a lot of the, the foods that you see here that represent Jamaican or Trinidadian cuisine are popularized. And that popularization is tied to class. And I think it's important that we don't for, we don't neglect that fact. When we think about Jamaican foods, you're not thinking about rundown or, or things like, even if you think of a, a Jamaican sweetie, bustamante, that's not something that you hear about here. Okay. When you think about even Jamaican breakfasts, here you think of ackee and saltfish, which is the national dish of Jamaica, but there's so much more than that, right? There's all of these different ground provisions that include like dasheen as well, which again, people don't really talk about. Or you have, okay, so the different types of Jamaican porridge, right? Everybody here growing up, I always ate like cornmeal porridge. That was the thing, but porridge is like a big part. That is your go-to Jamaican breakfast. But here, you don't really hear about uh, green banana porridge, which is my favorite. It's literally you're blending up green bananas and your choice of milk. It can, chances are it's going to be like coconut milk or even an almond milk and throwing in all of these different spices. You don't hear about that. And that is because, again, it's tied to class. You have, again, stew peas. That's another one, right? People call it poor man's food. Or you have OMG corn beef or AKA bully beef. You eat that, it's simply corned beef and white rice. That's a simple dinner and it's so good. But you don't hear about those so much. Then those are not popularized and you don't see them in Jamaican restaurants because again, that's tied to class. And in Jamaican culture, we tend to, to want to only highlight the things that are associated with high class. Because you have to think about it this way. Most Jamaicans who do especially come to America, they have more money. They're more able to come here than than the average Jamaican. And they bring with them this tendency to, to draw nearer to higher class foods, right? So that ends up completely leaving out like a whole set of delicious cuisine that you can get if you go there, but you're not going to get even jerk here. Jerk is so popularized in the U S and I have yet, I've, I've only had really one experience 
with Jerk that was like amazing here. And funny enough, that was my best experience with Jerk. But it was in, <laughs> it was in Miami in like a, a, a parking lot at a stadium, right? Like after a football game at, at a random push cart. But Jerk here even loses, it loses its magic. Also, there's something you said that I want to. I want you to sit with a little bit more that I love, I love so much. When you said the thing about like when people come here and are presenting food that has a sort of tie to class or what they want, they want the consumer to think about that. Basically, the delicious soulful foods get left out of the story because what do you, they, do you think they don't expect the American palate or the you know palate outside of Jamaica is gonna want to eat the corned beef? <laughs> and it maybe it's something I don't want to say a shame, but Jamaicans. One thing you got to know is this is speaking for most Jamaicans. But in terms of some of the things I'm saying, I want to be very careful to say I'm not speaking for all Jamaicans. Right. Because yeah, I gotta say that because the funny thing about being a Jamaican American, right, or Jamaican, is like growing up. I have uncles and in particular uncles who would challenge me being called Jamaican because I don't have those political experiences and I, I haven't been fully immersed. I didn't grow up there. So for them, they're like, you're not Jamaican. Whereas in school though, I go to school and everybody's like, you Jamaican as hell. So it's also, it's really important to note that there is like a distance that I do have from certain parts of Jamaican culture. But what I will say is important to know about Jamaicans pretty much as a whole is they are very prideful right? A very proud people. There's this fixation on nothing but the best and what people, especially Americans, perceive as the best. That pervades like Jamaican culture. When Jamaicans migrate to the U.S., why there are certain dishes that they focus on more that they want in the spotlight is because, yeah, in Jamaica, oxtail, escovitch fish, which is a big thing here, goat, those things are associated with wealth, right? You don't see goat on the everyday Jamaican table that at a special event, especially occasion, right? Same thing with oxtail. You see them at Christmas time, Easter. So I think that translates, and that's pretty very much aligned with wanting to put up this this image of like high class and elevation. We're pausing here for a quick break. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Tiffany after this message from our sponsor. These days, taking the time to save the sweet things in life is especially important. Maybe that's indulging in Talenti's traditionally made gelato or homestyle meals made with quality ingredients. For the latter, there's Tallgrass Food Box, a subscription service that delivers fresh produce from Black farmers across North Carolina. Founded by Gabrielle E.W. Carter, Derek Beasley, and Gerald Harris, the service is committed to supporting the sustainability of Black farmers within the local marketplace. To learn more about Tallgrass Food Box and other creators Talenti is championing within a Black culinary community, follow Talenti on Instagram. Welcome back to Black Desserts, a podcast presented by Black food folks. My guest today is Tiffany Ann Parks, known for her beautiful pies through our practice, Pie Nanny. Before the break, 
Tiffany shared many of her thoughts on Jamaican and Caribbean foodways and the cultural aspects that often get lost in translation. We talked about so much during our conversation, but at this point, I'd wanted to pivot and learn more about her perspectives on the Caribbean and specifically Jamaican baking tradition that folks outside the culture may miss. I really was just wanting to talk through the f- whole canon of Caribbean baking. I think doesn't suddenly just tie itself specifically to dessert. Like there's this whole world of breads and the dough making for patties. And I think I see it really strongly in your pie making, but I just think that there's something during this series we've been thinking a lot about how precious baking recipes are as heirlooms and while sort of desserts might not be as ubiquitous in the same way that they are in the U.S., it does feel to be a really particular pastry tradition, sort of baking tradition. So I would love if you could just talk a little bit about those. Absolutely. You know what's really funny, and this is very personal, when I was, apparently when I was a baby, we had just moved to South Florida, I found out after I started Pinani that my parents owned a patty shop. Did not know that. And I was like, man, that's interesting. <laughs> because when I started playing with pastry and then putting, filling up this, this puff pastry and then standard pie crust with savory Jamaican fillings, right? Your oxtail and your curry goat and your curry chicken and seafood curry. I thought I was really doing something new. Oh, I was like, oh, this is, this is genius. <laughs> and sure, here in the U.S. especially, it is like people are like, oh, it's very different. I've never had this before. This is, and that's because I'm using like traditional fillings. But if you think about it though, and, and thinking about what you just said, it's not right. And I found out like one of my, a friend of mine, like their mother baked like these kinds of pies before. Used to do this when they were a kid in Jamaica. And I think that is the case in Jamaica now. There's this Jamaican chef that I follow on IG who plays with Jamaican dessert and fuses baking and with, it's a lot of savory baking. So here again, when you think of baking, you are thinking of primarily desserts, right? In Jamaica, it's flipped. You're thinking of primarily savory things. We have a savory palate, right? So you think of, yes, the patty and the cocoa bread. And when I'm thinking of heirlooms, that's why I brought up my parents, It's something that is like, while it has been popularized, and there's a reason why, okay? It's because patty and cocoa bread is amazing. It's delicious. And there are so many ways that you can play with it. And I think that's what even drew me to what I do with my savory pies. Like, I can do, with just the concept of pie, one, it lends itself to all these different textures already because you have one texture, which is the pastry, and then you have another texture, which is the filling, but you can layer the fillings, right? There's so much that you can do with pie. And then when you think of patties, those are hand pies, and there are just so many different things that you can stuff inside of them. And, and it lends itself to passing these things down from generation to generation because patties are so versatile, because you can do so much with them and you can fill them with so much that none of these fillings ever get lost. Like for me, I'm looking at like creating, I already created a rundown patty. Let me, and let me take back that word create because I don't want to sound too much like our, our dear friend Christopher Columbus. But that's something that already exists in Jamaica. I know that. I didn't know that when I was coming up with it. But I was like, oh, and that just lends itself to the idea. I've heard this said many times by people 
in the food and beverage community that you're never creating something. You're really not. Like, it's always already there. And the food and beverage people stole that from your, your auntie, your granny from the South. It's nothing new under the sun. That's that African proverb of it all, right? There's nothing new under the sun, right? Yes. Yeah, we're constantly, me playing with pies in this way and doing all of this, even though I don't have the culinary background that a lot of other people in food and beverage have. Like, I don't have the auntie or the grandma who's this amazing chef or amazing cook who passed this down to me. But what I do have is a very strong culture that comes from a very proud people. And no matter what, even if like, I have, even if I didn't go back to Jamaica in the summertime, growing up in South Florida, because it is so very much the mini Caribbean, like no matter what, I would have still really received. <laughs> the cultural knowledge that I needed to continue that pride, that source of pride. I want to spend the last little bit of time talking about Pie Nanny and just love on it a little bit. Share it with people when they go to and experience with and engage with this work. It is, like I said, it's super resting. You are impacted by all the layers of context that a seemingly simple pie has. Because I think there's so many implications especially now it's sort of we're rethinking restaurants we're rethinking how we engage with like food and culture as cultural institutions are becoming much more interested in food culture i think that there's such an interesting new space for conceptual artists to sort of use food as a medium and your work seems to be right in time for that kind of this kind of new era so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about your practice Ooh, where do I start? All right, let's start from the beginning. Let's see. So Pine Nanny really started out as like a joke, to be honest. Like, it was, <laughs> as far as the name goes, and we'll start with that because that's like the catchiest part. Of it. That's usually what draws people in besides going to my IG and looking at the, the images. Right? But when I first came up with that name, it was like, it was just, it was supposed to be just a very cheeky name that plays on aspects of feminism and womanhood, right? That's it. As all this was, is just a joke because you you have the term punani in Jamaican or Caribbean culture, but then in Southern culture you have punani, and it translates. So it's playing with those two cultures and that term. And it was also a play on being inclusive and exclusive and looking at culture in that way because there are people who get it immediately. Which and there's always a joke that goes along with it. It's hilarious. But then you have people that don't get it, right? And what they do get, though, and this is what has allowed it to the concept to evolve for me, is they say, oh, pie nanny. And I spelled it that way, P-I-E-N-A-N-N-Y for a reason, so that this would happen. Oh, pie nanny, that's so cute. You're like the nanny of the pies. And I'm like, yeah, true. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, I take care of pies. Oh, that's cute. Yes, I like the cutesy aspect of it, too. But what then developed was me thinking of it as thinking of it historically, in historical context, and looking at, oh, wait. <laughs> uh, not just thinking about being a caretaker of the pie, but thinking about how Black women have been the caretakers of so many for so long. And this is a part of our history, not just Black history, but history, American history as a whole. Because we're all, again, I, I keep going back to this idea of all being bound up together and how our histories are so bound and also wondering in some instances why we're not so bound in the same way today. But yeah, so it developed from just being this very cheeky, like playful 
concept to then being like, oh no, there's more to this. And I'm thinking of it again in a historical context and then just thinking about it too as a moniker. So Pineanny is very much reflective of who I am as a person. So when I think about like my crusts, the, 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 my doughs, uh, the pastry as a whole, I'm thinking about those crusts as like American or European culture that has housed me, right? And then thinking about the fillings as the meat of it, literally. But the core of who I am and the fact that I grew up in a Jamaican household within this larger house. So it's reflective of who I am in that sense. So then again, thinking of it as a moniker for me. Pineanny is me, I am Pineanny. That was all really dope. I just find the sort of your process videos really interesting. I think one of the first videos I saw was one where you were, you had done this cutout and it was like meringue or cotton candy or something. And you were sort of burning. I was looking at this image and looking at the process. How do you take something tangible and consumable to something conceptual and ethereal? Yeah, that one, the one that you're talking about, that was, as are, I think, all of my designs and all of the tarts that I produce for social media consumption. Like, a lot of those, they're very emotional processes for me, primarily because of a lot of what you just said, right? They're tied to our history and our past and a lot of our traumas. But that one in particular even was tied to personal traumas, right, at that time. And I think that's where art comes in for me. I, one of my taglines for my personal IG account is that I'm reimagining culinary arts. Because culinary art, most of the time people aren't thinking about actually drawing, like into something. They're not, that's not what they're thinking. That's not the, a part of the process. But that's when I say reimagining, reimagining culinary arts, I'm really, I'm literally talking about fusing art and then culinary in a way that I think that a lot of people aren't doing it. Just in the fact that a lot of the tools that I use are tied to ceramics, right? Like I use, sometimes I use woodcutting tools. I use ceramic tools. I use anything that helps me convey my messages and that makes the process easy for me because it's not an easy process. Like I said, it a lot of it is very emotional. And sometimes it isn't, right? It's just me like going and tasting something somewhere. Like right now I'm working, there's this place called Jacob's Pickles or in upper Manhattan. I think there's one in Brooklyn now too, but it's like a modern Southern cuisine type place. And they have this dessert that is like a biscuit bread pudding. Lord have mercy. I tried this thing and I was like, oh, this is so good. But the texture immediately reminded me of Jamaican potato pudding. And I was like, ooh, which is a beloved dessert of Jamaicans like when it's made. Because I hated it when I was a kid. It was always dry. But like <laughs> when you have somebody that makes it right, it's amazing. It's so moist and just ooh and creamy. And like I said, I like creamy things which is rare in Jamaican dessert. It reminded me of that minus all of the, the different spices that you get with Jamaican potato pudding. So right now I'm working on a recipe for like a fusion between Jamaican potato pudding and this biscuit bread pudding or American bread pudding too. It's not just biscuit, but bread pudding. But I'm making these biscuits with Japanese sweet potato, which is beloved in Jamaica. You eat it with rundown. But I'm making these biscuits with Japanese sweet potato and then bringing in the flavors of Jamaican potato pudding, but then also bringing in like this condensed with. But my process is sometimes it's very emotional and it's tied to our traumas and Sometimes it's just tied to like joy, the joy that I experience when I eat an amazing dessert and I'm like here and I'm like, ooh, 
how can I make this? <laughs> like, how can I bring a Jamaican twist to it? Or just Caribbean twist to it? So sometimes it's just as simple as that. I, I just, I think there's something really beautiful about the work you're doing because it's really asking more forward-thinking questions about how to use tradition and how to use culture in a modern context. It's so respectful of the past and it's reverential of the past, but it also understands that like these traditions, they're only valuable if they remain alive in a context that is consumable and usable to folks who are like... By choice. Oh God, so I can't forget to bring that in. So yesterday I went to, woo, and this was, I was supposed to be going uh, to the Schomburg to do some research for a project that I'm working on right now, but that's coming up. And I didn't realize that the reading rooms were closed on Saturday and Sunday, but not the exhibits. So they had two exhibits up, right? One of them being Traveling Wild Black Lord. And when I say it took a minute for me to leave that room, because <laughs> I really had to just sit with that for a while, it brought up a lot of emotions. And primarily because throughout that entire exhibit, you're thinking about the fact that this all started because you had no choice, right? That traveling, that wasn't a choice. Whereas now we're in a place where we are far more privileged and we are able to choose and traveling can be a luxury and it can be something that is enjoyed. I, I immediately tied that uh, to food and to, to my practice. So a lot of these fusions that exist, right, in not just American cuisine, but very much in <laughs> Caribbean cuisine as a whole, those weren't by choice either. And so now for me, a large part of my practice is this play and it's not lost on me that this play is very much a privilege. And it is, like you said, furthering this narrative and these traditions that are so rooted in, in, in force. But now that we get to choose and we get to write these stories, that's a large emotional part of my practice. It's a huge responsibility too, though. And I think so much of what I appreciate about what you do is that it's so informed and beholden to so many points of culture. You are bringing in so many references that are constantly asking bigger, more thoughtful, deeper questions. And you aren't afraid of being wrong. You aren't afraid of changing your mind about things. But it's always, it feels like when we are looking at your work and imagine the taste of the pie that you're creating. It just feels like we are along for the ride of you discovering something about yourself or the concept that you are asking us to interrogate. And it's such a beautiful thing to consume. I just wonder, I, like, I don't know, I just, I'm so excited to see where your project goes and how it expands because it's that curiosity I think is so valuable in this moment. Yeah, I like that you said I'm not afraid of being wrong because I think in the, the age that we're currently living in, Lord have mercy. It does, I think, it probably does. It doesn't do this for me, but I'm pretty sure it um, instills a fear in people of being vulnerable in that way and showing that, yeah, it's all right to be wrong sometimes. Like, I know I made a comment in an interview in the past where I said that we all judge, right? Whoever, I think it was something along the lines of, whoever came up with the phrase, only God can judge me, I said it must have been a man, right? Uh <laughs> No, we all do it. Everybody, you know what? There's nothing wrong with that because judgments help you be a better person. It's when you condemn someone and when there's no room for a correction and you leave no room for someone uh, to grow. 
that's what's wrong. And I see that a lot now. It's just, to me, that's really sad, which is leads me into like why I developed The Seat Above the Table, which is like an offshoot of Pineapple. It's so that we can have these sorts of conversations that clearly we can't have on social media or in some interviews because Lord have mercy, then <laughs> like you're automatically, like immediately just targeted and you have this stigma attached to you. And that's where a seat above the table came from too. I was born out of Pine Annie, that playfulness and just continuing play and, and discussing things and learning because a large part of learning is play. Yeah, man. I just, you're so brilliant. I just, you asking such good questions, and this is really interesting work. So I just appreciate you, and I appreciate your time so much. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Well, episode two is done, and I want to thank you for spending your time to share another episode of Black Desserts. The first two episodes of the season were all about broadening our ideas around Black Desserts to include a more global perspective. I'd like to once again thank my guest Tiffany Ann Parks for joining me to talk about her amazing pie art, as well as her Caribbean culinary identity. Be sure to follow Tiffany on Instagram at Pinanny, that's P-I.N-A-A-N.ee, to check out her amazing pastries and the stories behind them. And though we didn't get into it this episode, you should also be sure to follow her dinner conversation series, A Seat Above the Table, on Instagram at A Seat Above the Table where she creates intimate spaces for complicated conversations around race, gender, and culture. For Black Desserts, I'm your host, Therese Nelson, and thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the series, I'd love if you could subscribe, rate, and comment on the episodes wherever you're listening. We love to hear from you, and we use your feedback to guide us forward. Black Desserts is a limited series podcast presented by Clay Williams and Colleen Vincent founders of Black Food Folks. The show is made possible by continued support of our sponsor, Talenti Gelato and Sorbeto. Black Desserts is produced by the brilliant creative team of Whetstone Media, led by founder Stephen Satterfield, season two producer Marvin Yu, editor Mary Creedon, intern Kyla Stone, and supervising producer Celine Glazer.